welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. We haven't gotten a new review on Apple Podcasts since February. I am recording on August 1st, so if you're not driving, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. Thank you. So today, I'm super excited. I'm going to be talking to Jens Frank from the Scandinavian Working Dog Institute about teaching dog dogs multiple alerts to discriminate between targets. I get asked about this all the time, and I've always kind of demurred, saying that it seems challenging but possible, and I was super excited to hear Jens talk about this on the Canine Detection Collaborative podcast, so, you know, I had to get him on to talk just about this topic with us. So for anyone who doesn't know who Jens is... He has a PhD in ecology and is currently working as an associate professor at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences and as one of the founders of the Scandinavian Working Dog Institute. Jens has extensive experience in working and training dogs and handlers, as well as setting up quality control systems for professional dog teams and managing working dog programs for authorities, as well as the private sector. I am super excited to get to this interview. Like, I, oh man, I'm sweating. I'm so excited, guys. Um, but before we get into it, we are going to dive into our science highlight. So this week, we read Relationships Between Personality of Human Dog Dyads and Performance in Working Tasks, which was published in Applied Animal Behavior Science in April 2016 by Sarah Homedy and seven co-authors, who I'm not going to read because it's seven and they have French names, and I don't want to embarrass myself or offend anyone. So, this study looks at the link between dog and human personality traits and how they work together to influence performance. Fourteen teams from the Paris Firefighters Brigade went through a repeated search task where speed, precision, and improvement were all measured. The researchers used a questionnaire to assess quality of life of the dogs, the NEO-PIR questionnaire to examine human personality traits, and several subtests to assess the dog's personality traits. All of the 14 dogs included were Belgian Shepherds, um, either Mals or Turves. The search tests took place in a, quote, industrial wasteland that was regularly used as a training area for the dogs searching for people in the rubble. The test stopped when the dog alerted, either correctly or incorrectly, or after five minutes. Um, I find it really interesting that they expected to see and did see improvement at all over three days of searching. So they did a search um, each day for three days in a row, and they saw improvements in an area that the teams already used to train. Um, which is really interesting to me because I wouldn't necessarily expect improvement in that situation, but they did see it. Um, and it doesn't necessarily say by how much in the paper. So kind of interesting. So the paper highlights that the quality of the dog-human relationship as characterized by having more toys at home, doing more joint activities, and less physical punish punishment correlated with improved precision in the search. Interestingly, search speed was negatively correlated with sharing activities. So doing more stuff with your dog made you slower in this particular um, experiment. It is possible that self-reporting was to blame here because the, um, the fire brigade really encouraged doing a lot with your dog. So potentially people self-reported inaccurately about how much time they were spending with their dogs because this does contradict earlier research. Um, 
This paper did drive me a little bit nuts as I was reading it because the abstract says the opposite about toys. In the abstract, it says that toys in the home negatively affect improvement. But then in the figure and in the discussion, they say that toys correlate with improvement. So I think that's the right answer. I did try to email the authors and my email bounced. So I've sent them a message on LinkedIn, um, but they didn't get back to me by the time um, we sat down to record. So several human traits were correlated with performance. Modesty in particular was related to higher precision. And then conscientiousness was associated with precision and improvement. Extroversion was a mixed bag. Excitement seeking was associated with lower improvement, but gregariousness and activity were associated with more speed and improvement. The authors expected neuroticism to negatively affect the results, but did not find a relation. And all of these are kind of they're the big five personality traits, which you may have heard about if you spend any time really in like the personality science uh, or pop psychology worlds, pretty popular stuff. Um, and I think there's actually a decent amount of like research behind these on like some other kind of personality trait metrics. Um, did not have time to double check all that, but that's what they used. So then there's some research on zebra finches that suggests that matching personalities improve success in chick rearing. The researchers were curious if that would apply to working dog human relationships. And they found that matching dog human pairs on neuroticism improved less from search one to search three while exploratory dogs and extroverted people were faster but less precise. Teams that matched on, quote, positive emotions and activity for the people and, quote, human familiarity for the dogs were faster, more precise, and improved more. Um, kind of one of those things that it's, it's interesting to see this association, but um, I don't know if there's much that you can do about it. I guess I'm curious to know if matching is more important or scoring higher on these things. Um, Cause I guess maybe what you want to do is try to figure out where you fall on that line and then find a dog that matches that. But again, this is a pretty preliminary study that's just finding um, association. So we might not be able to pull much out of this. Now to quote the discussion, quote, one limitation of our study is the relatively low number of dyads limited by our study site, the Paris Fire Brigade. Um, and I'm going to end quote there and interject. Also, we're looking at teams that it's all the same breed. They all train together. They all work together. They all presumably have similar, the same protocols. Um, there's a lot of standardization there that is helpful, but also kind of reduces the variety and might kind of make it harder to pull out the most significant results. Um, now I'll continue the quote. Moreover, given the high number of behaviors included to determine dogs' traits and the low sample size, results should be treated cautiously and future, future studies with larger samples are needed to confirm these results. Another major limitation to our study is the high number of correlations we observed. However, our purpose was to investigate associations without causal interference. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with Jens. So Jens, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. Why don't we start out with um, just kind of give us an overview of what this project was and kind of what your goals were as you were working um, with these carnivore detection dogs. So it's actually not uh, a project. It's an ongoing program that we have for the government in uh, Sweden and Norway. So some of the rangers have a dog helping them in their work. So the, the rangers, they work both with the monitoring of large carnivores and also with the assessment of suspected predation events on mainly on livestock and dogs, but uh, occasionally 
they also on humans and then uh, it's i don't remember now if it's 15 or maybe closer to 20 years ago we when we started to use dogs a little bit more systematic than we have been doing before so we have a, an ongoing training program and certification for the dogs so we know the likelihood that they miss a wolf or lynx or bear track and we know if there is a tendency to do false alerts as well okay so basically if a farmer then like loses a calf and there's a it's suspected that it was a wild animal these rangers would get called in with their dogs and then they're trying to gather evidence to figure out i assume there's some sort of like compensation or something that then happens for the farmer and potentially uh repercussions for the animal as well yes there is <clears throat> and since in the winter time it's easy to make the documentation with the snow on the ground and if there are 10 sheep killed it's also fairly easy to skin the animals and conclude on the cause of death and which carnivore was involved but since most predation events are this time of the year when it's the grazing season and we have no snow and sometimes i would say a, a growing issue not only in sweden but also in many other european countries is that uh, wolves uh, yeah scare cattle so it's it would be much better if it was just two or three cows uh, killed by wolves or bears but when they scare 20 30 or 50 to break the fence and run to the forest this uh, requires an enormous effort from the farmer to retrieve these animals again they quickly become more or less feral and you have to shoot them in the forest and it costs a lot of money and causes a lot of problems and it's extremely difficult to document whether it was mosquitoes or a moose or a helicopter that scared the cattle or if it was a wolf or a bear so then that's why we mainly why we set this program up because we we needed that uh, tool in the toolbox yeah that makes sense and then um if you can figure out exactly what it is there's something that then changes as far as yeah these like management decisions so that that makes sense as far as why it matters and so these dogs are actually kind of coming in and investigating these sites and finding the tracks or the trails not just scat correct Yes, it's mainly the tracks that they go for because animals always leave tracks, but uh, only occasionally the scats. So the tracks will mm -hmm. always be there, but we also use them to search for scats. So the typical protocol, if I am called out, is to first go around the pasture to see if the dog uh, indicates on any tracks going in or out and then i will 
mark them on my GPS because it's usually not one or two tracks going in and out. It can be quite messy, especially if there are several wolves in a family group, for example. Mm -hmm. And then, well, based on where these tracks are going in and out, it's usually possible to see one or two or three tracks that are more likely to be the longer track leading out of the area and occasionally it's needed to follow the track to get some dna samples in order to see if this is a specific individual or group of individuals and this Mm -hmm. has to do with the scandinavian peninsula we have inbreeding in the wolves and it's important to Mm -hmm. see when there are wolves that has immigrated from the finnish and russian uh, part of the population okay oh that's interesting yeah that makes sense so then you know as you're trying to figure out okay so we we have these dogs that can go in and help us find these tracks or trails but we want to know what species this is this is important for us for a variety of reasons what were some of the options that were considered as far as um, actually getting that answer? And uh, how did you kind of think through deciding on the methodology that you went with? We are probably a bit biased towards dogs and didn't really see any other alternative because we are all all that work in the field here or the rangers, I would say, are hunters uh, and in sweden we have a long tradition of using hunting dogs so we use dogs a lot and dogs have been used in wildlife management for many decades before we started this program as well but then more opportunistically searching for scats and tracks or carcasses and of course tracking down uh, large carnivores when they uh, should be culled for different reasons. So, yeah, we couldn't come to think of any other tool, and uh, yeah. I still haven't mm. been able to figure anything out. No, no, I don't. You know, especially once something has already happened. You know, there's it's too late for camera traps or anything else like that. And um, so then. Had you previously done work training dogs on multiple alerts and training dogs to tell you exactly what they had found before? Or was this kind of your first time going down this route as well? Uh, That was my first time doing that. Uh So typically we would have dogs uh, specialized on wolves and other dogs specialized on bears and a third dog for lynx. So this was, when we did this with the multiple alerts, it was the first time that I tested it. So the first uh, test we did, then we tried to have different alerts or different indications for the different species. Mm -hmm. Uh, So bark if the dog found a bear track and it should sit if it was a wolf and go into down and passive alert if it was a lynx for example we experimented with some different indications but we never managed to get that working reliably 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I know we we talked about this during our pre-interview, but you know, I get people who ask me that all the time and I've always kind of said, "Yeah, you know, it seems possible. I'm just I'm not sure it's practical and you know, it seems to me it like you, maybe with 3 items you you can kind of come up with that many alerts, but you know, we've worked on projects where the dogs are finding eight or nine different species, and I can't think of nine different alerts, let alone then actually bother training the dog to do that. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm I, again, I'm sure it's technically possible, but I don't, I don't really know if it makes sense. And you know, we'll get into how efficient it actually was. So, yeah, how did how did that um, that initial attempt go? Because again, I think that's where most of our minds go. Is okay, so we need the dogs to be able to tell us what it is. So can the dog just do a different alert for each of these species? So it worked very well, I would say, in a training environment where the dog only has to search for a few meters in a Mm -hmm. controlled environment and then the arousal in the dog is low. So there it worked very well. But when we try to bring it out in the field where the dog is searching for several kilometers before mm-hmm. it eventually maybe finds a track then it wasn't reliable at all i would say and mm-hmm. i think it's both yeah it's both due to the variation in scent from the different tracks but maybe mainly due to the arousal and expectations building up mm-hmm. when the dog has been searching for half a day and it's yeah it's usually warm and a lot of insects and all these other things so yeah it's a lot yeah. of things to think about for the dog Definitely. Yeah. So were you seeing that they were kind of reverting to maybe the alert that they had learned first or maybe that had been used more previously or were they, you know, just kind of throwing out random alerts? I'm just curious what it actually looked like. So my interpretation was that there was no pattern between dogs other than that they seemed to do the alert that they had the highest expectation would yield a reward in that context and whether it was because they had been doing a lot of sit or down indications just before or just because they associated a certain context with sit or down i don't know but we Mm -hmm. were not able to get it reliably associated with the sent from the animal that we were tracking. Yeah, that makes sense. And how did you know, I guess, at this point that the dogs were incorrect? Was it because they were like, could you see a difference in the change of behavior? Were you then kind of able to confirm that the dogs were incorrect? No, so we never put it out in uh, operational use we just came to the testing phase where we have radio colored wolves or bears or lynx so i knew what was the correct answer Mm -hmm. 
gotcha. the dogs okay. were not showing that uh, consistently. Okay, that makes sense. So then um, I assume you went back to the drawing board and were probably kind of frustrated and bummed out. So then what happened? So the dogs uh, are still useful for mm-hmm. uh, for the managers because as it is now in the Swedish uh, government, if the dog indicates, if one of these uh, specially trained and certified dogs indicates that it has found a track from a large carnivore then that is enough for the government to pay compensation to the farmer and for this to be counted as a predation event and that is maybe the most important part of it but for the preventive measures that we want to uh, apply immediately before the next night comes. It's important to know if it was a wolf or a bear, because flairdry, for example, will work for wolves as an immediate response measure, but for bears it's more or less useless. So we still could do uh, a big part of the work without recognizing the species Mm -hmm. but i i didn't have any good ideas on how to solve it but i was actually driving back from bergen or bergen you may say on this uh, mm -hmm. norwegian west coast Uh yeah Uh, we had uh, did a course there and then on the way back i was driving and i had my colleague Lars Felt, who is uh, he's, uh, unfortunately uh, dead now, but he was a very experienced uh, ethologist and dog trainer, and he was one of the persons uh, setting up the Swedish uh, government dog training school for the armed forces uh, uh, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we were discussing this, and then he suggested that we should do a secondary indication so that all the dogs should show a passive indication, either a sit or down and stare when they find a track from a large carnivore. Mm-hmm. And then the hander goes in front of the dog and puts three different objects and gives the cue to mark is what we say and Mm -hmm. then the dog goes and grabs the object that represents the species to us Mm -hmm. and the scent to the dog so it was his uh, idea and it it worked uh, much better Mm -hmm. it still requires quite a lot of training but if you put in a lot of training then we have also been able to get reliable results. So, yeah, what does that um, training look like? Obviously, we're not going to be able to explain exactly how everyone's going to do it at home in a in a podcast. But, um, yeah, what, what did that look like somewhat briefly? So there are some uh, mistakes that you would like to avoid. And... I have not made all mistakes when it comes to this, but I have made uh, several at least. And 
I would strongly suggest that if you want to have a dog that has a passive indication of tracks, you add this indication as the last step of your tracking training. So first go through your whole progression plan of how to train a tracking dog and make it have a crazy high expectation to find and follow the tracks. And then start adding the indication. Because Mm -hmm. if you add it early in the training, you will get a dog that quite frequently, when tracking, goes into the indication. Because it's not unusual for the dog to mm -hmm. lose the track when it's following it. So it loses Mm -hmm. the track, goes off for three meters, finds it, and makes the indication. And this will drive you crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see that slowing you down and starting to drive you nuts pretty fast. Yes. So don't start doing that until the dog is the perfect tracking dog that you need. Then at the end, you, you teach the, to teach the passive indication on a track, I find is fairly straightforward because Mm -hmm. the dog wants to follow the track and you to start with you can either just hold the dog back and if you have been training a lot of repetitions of sit or down just before this session that will be on the top of the dog's mind so it will be one of the first behaviors the dog tries And when it then starts to go into a sit or down, you give the cue to continue tracking. And the dog tracks, finds an article, and is reinforced. So pretty quickly, the dog learns that. When I find the track, in order to be able to follow it forward, I need to first sit or down. So that's what we first establish. Mm -hmm. And then I start with one species and then i do it on artificial tracks so mm-hmm. i then have a sock usually just an ordinary sock with hair from wolves a wolf in it okay mm-hmm. and then i can set the track just pulling this sock behind me because not it's not like the dog thinks it's following a wolf but it's something added to this track so that the dog can discriminate between other human tracks and this human track with the wolf hair pulled behind it. Uh And and then when the dog finds the track, goes into the down, I take the wolf object and I have kind of textile cones because they are foldable. Mm. So you can just take that out of your pocket put it on the ground, and then I say mark, the Swedish word Mm -hmm. for mark. And then the Uh dog is allowed to go and grab the article, and we play with this article. Okay. Uh And so that's how I start. So I do that for wolf, and then I do exactly the same thing for lynx, and then for bear. Mm -hmm. And then I started discrimination and then i 
I do exactly the same, but then instead of placing just one, I place two. Two. Uh-huh. And then yeah. the first time, of course, I place the wolf closer to the dog and the bear yeah. one one meter behind. And then gradually moves it closer and closer. And should the dog then go and grab the bear one, I would say, no, take it away and uh, punish the dog by putting it into a sit and let it sit for one or two minutes mm-hmm. while I set a new track and the dog gets a new chance. Okay. And yeah. Pretty quickly, they want to avoid being cued just to sit instead of tracking so then they choose to do what brings the continued tracking instead yeah no that makes that makes sense and that seems kind of more straightforward than i thought i think um actually (laughs) so that's always that's always nice to hear it's like oh okay i think this makes sense um so yeah, where where are you at right now with this project? Are there still kind of problem, or uh, I guess not project, but um, this program? Are there still kind of problems that you're working on, or do you feel pretty happy with where the dogs are at right now? No, it's continuous uh, problems. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's a trade off. So the mm-hmm. rangers are like most dog handlers in the police or military they are first and foremost rangers and like the police are first and foremost police and Mm -hmm. so the dog has to cope with a lot of different things and it Mm -hmm. has to live in the house with the family and uh, yeah be able to do all these things so Currently, many of the dogs are hunting dogs, and mm. uh, they are. We are not able currently to have a selection system. So it's the county administration boards in Sweden who are responsible for the large carnivore management in their respective region. And then Mm -hmm. we have the Swedish EPA, which is the national authority, trying to coordinate them. But each region decides for themselves. So it's each region who decides if they want to send a dog, uh, a ranger to become a dog handler. And in that case, which ranger? And they then come with a dog. So many of the dogs, uh, or at least some of the dogs, are not really suitable for this type of systematic training. They are hunting dogs, uh, or some of them are maybe closer to pet dogs. So the days when they feel like it, they work very well. The days when they don't, well... Then they don't they work don't. very well. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that is an issue. We could become better if we were able to select dogs of the typical working breeds. So Malinois, yeah. uh, working Labradors, uh, working Springer Spaniels, for example. I don't think we could have dogs with 
shorter legs than a Springer Spaniel because then they will not be able to keep up navigate the terrain because yeah. it's very messy. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so that seems like a huge challenge. Um and do you run into a lot of the same problems that it seems like are really common for police and military dogs where there's just kind of not enough time allotted in the rangers' schedules for the training as well? Yes. Yes and no. So it's... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, these two issues come together because some of the dogs... Uh, are not really motivated to train for a long time every day. So then it doesn't matter if they have time a lot. Mm -hmm. But some of them struggle finding time as well. But I would say Mm -hmm. all of them are extremely motivated. And um, yeah, most of them do at least one training session per day. Wow, yeah, that's awesome. Yes, uh, and yeah, they are very motivated. And I would say you quickly become motivated in this job, both because you feel for the people that you uh, help when you mm-hmm. do the documentation, and also for your own ego, because uh, we are quite critically. Uh, watched uh, by different organizations, both those who are for the large carnivores and those who oppose the large carnivores. And also the media shows large interest in in this. So all the work these dog handlers do, there will be persons following them, either the animal, the livestock owner, and or media or other representatives who want to see if this actually works. So it's not like they are out there in the forest just uh, doing their thing. They are closely watched. So you want it to be reliable and work good. Yeah, no, of course. That's a lot of pressure. (laughs) And yeah, I know, um, I don't know how the climate is in Sweden and Norway, but yeah, large carnivores, and especially when they come into conflict with livestock, it's, it's emotional, it's intense. And it, yeah, there's a lot of money and livelihood on the line. So that that makes sense. And um, especially you mentioned as well, dogs potentially being the victims at times. And, you know, that can also be emotional, um, which I guess people can be emotional about their cows too. But yeah, but uh, with the dogs, it's uh, even worse. Uh, yeah. People get very emotional. Yeah. But there, actually, yeah. these these dogs have been a great help because many of the smaller dog breeds, uh, if a wolf grabs one of them, they can carry it uh, for several right. kilometers. So before we had these dogs, there was no way we can document if even if a person claimed that they had seen a wolf grabbing their dog at the front lawn and then running away. There was no way we could say whether that was true 
or not. So then they wouldn't get any documentation, uh, any compensation, or this would not be counted as an official predation event. But now with these dogs, they indicate that yes, there has been a wolf here, and we can then cue the dog to track the wolf, and then we will find either the carcass of the dog or at least parts of it so we can actually document what has happened yeah wow that's got to be really tough but really really important work and you know (laughs) yeah if if something like that happened to yeah my dog or my cat or something like that it would be comforting to have that as as a service um so yeah so are there any things that you kind of see in the future um for this sort of work or anything that you would recommend to people if they were considering trying to teach their dogs this sort of secondary alert um any any words from the wise <laughs> I think the more I work with dogs the <clears throat> the more I realize how important selection of dogs is. So in my experience, most dogs also from the the typical working breeds uh, will not be a suitable working dog for detection or tracking or bite work for that matter. So be very careful in the selection and then you need to have a plan. You need to have a Mm -hmm. progression plan so that you have a clear goal that you can break down in sub goals because otherwise you will run into problems like creating the expectation to show the passive alert. If you add that early in the process, you will create an expectation that becomes a problem later on. And I find that just the process of listing the sub-goals with a pen and paper or on a computer makes it possible to avoid a lot of these mistakes on the desk instead of doing it with the dog. Yeah. So I yeah, think that's... those two are important. No, that makes sense. I know it's something that I've been considering trying to teach Um one or both of my dogs um, more in the context of identifying scat, which, you know, we were talking about that Mm -hmm. genetic test to identify scat has gotten so much more accessible and cheap and fast that that necessity might be um, decreasing (laughs) or um, not necessarily useful anymore. Um, but we don't currently do any tracking. So that would be the only place in which for us, it would be, it would be useful right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we'll see. I, I also don't necessarily need to throw more giant training projects on my plate if there's not <laughs> a clear need for them, but it is. Uh, <laughs> but it's a uh, fun just, thing. <laughs> yeah. It's it does fun sound to train fun. it. Yeah, I um I started doing some kind of match to sample work with my older dog Barley. He had um TPLO surgery last mm-hmm. fall. Um so while he was, you know, he was allowed to do two 5-minute walks around the block a day or something <laughs> like that, we did a little bit of this sort of work cuz you know, we had to do something to keep both of us from going nuts. Um, yes. But 
Yeah, no, I mean, again, I'm just so, I was so excited to hear someone had actually done this because again, I know I've said it four times on the show already, but people ask us about this concept all the time. And I've always just been like, I don't know. I've never done it. It seems possible, but you know, I don't know how necessary it is. And it's cool that we finally found a situation in which a, it was necessary in which it was necessary enough that someone actually tried it. And it does seem like it works if you've got the right dog and the right progression plan and you stick with it. Yes. Well, is there anything that you wanted to come back to and expand on or clarify um, before we go? Yeah, one thing actually, and it's mm-hmm. uh, I think in order to make this skill work successfully and reliably, also in an operational context, you need to be. Uh, disciplined and (laughs) dutiful Uh, and that's uh, why i sent you the abstract of the Uh article because in that article they show that one of the factors that are most important for improvement or progression is the dutifulness of the handler and that was in the context of training explosion or explosives detection dogs. But uh, my experience is that it translates to any kind of dog training. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we as dog handlers tend to drift off the dutifulness a bit. So instead of being loyal to the end goal we tend to train what we think is fun or nice or stimulating for us at the moment and that Mm -hmm. is usually not leading to progression uh, towards another end goal that is specific for a working task yeah and yeah i think it's really important in general but in specific when it comes to this where there are so many different contexts that we need to train this secondary uh, indication in if we want it to work reliably when there are money and other things at stake uh, depending on what decision the dog makes and yeah my experience has been that if we can make the dog handlers train disciplined with Mm -hmm. this end goal in mind and do one or two sessions per day the consistency really is what pays off yeah that makes sense i know when i was a, a baby trainer i definitely when i was reading this paper and it talked about i think it was Um, excitement seeking was negatively correlated with um, precision in the uh, 
in the handlers, I was like, oh man, yeah, that's, that's me. Um, I particularly when I was a baby trainer and didn't, didn't do this professionally yet, I had so many half trained behaviors and, you know, I'd see a trick on Instagram, but get halfway through it and then see a different one. And, you know, I had nothing on verbal cue and nothing under stimulus control and, you know, having it as a job helps a lot because I have a lot more motivation and focus and kind of a clear goal. I think, you know, yes. when I'm just playing with my dog, it's, it was, it was one thing and, um, I, but it's still definitely something, I think this paper was a good reminder of, okay, maybe being aware of these personality traits and these tendencies and how to, to counteract them and, you know, still be the best trainer that we can be, um, and, you know, serve our, our project partners and our dogs and, you know, the wildlife as best as we can. Yes. So. Yeah, it was, that was a that's a good reminder. Well, Jens, um, if people are interested in learning more about you or um, these projects or anything like that, where can people find you online? Uh, so I have two affiliations. I'm an associate professor at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences at the Department of Ecology, so I can be found there. Mm-hmm. And I also run... A, an institute called the Scandinavian Working Dog Institute, where we train dogs and the dog handlers for different authorities. And we have a web page uh, and a Facebook page for that as well. Excellent. Yeah. And as always, we will link that in the show notes. So if anyone is driving, you don't have to crash your car to try to write this down. Um, You can just check out our website. Um, And for everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes, join our Patreon, or join our online conservation detection dog course, all at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.